0: Welcome to another episode of Shoespeak HR today. So I'm joined by Navi Atwell and Gwyneth Tan, who I work with um, in the employment team here at ShoeSmiths. Hi both, how are you doing today?
1: Very well, thank you. Hi Amy, good to be here.
0: (laughs) Um, So I need to ask you both a question that we ask everybody that comes on our podcast. Um, So I'll start with you Navi. So what is your favourite podcast?
2: Um, Recently, I've been enjoying The Wolf and Owl for some like hearted nice. humour. So yeah, I think
0: that one for the time being. Good choice. What
1: about you, Gwyneth? Mine has to be Desert Island Discs. <laughs> oh no,
0: nice. Good choice. And obviously, Shoespeak HR, I assume, is on your list? Oh yes, that that's very, <laughs> followed very, very closely
1: by Shoespeak HR.
0: Brilliant. No, that's great. Um, so today we're going to talk about... Um, Basically, I suppose in a nutshell, DSARs and litigation. So we've recently seen claimants in employment tribunal proceedings using their right of access that they have under the UK GDPR um, as a way basically of accessing information, which might not necessarily be disclosed normally as part of tribunal proceedings. So we're gonna explore that a little bit today during the episode. So I suppose if I go back to basics first, what what is a DSAR, a Data Subject Access Request? So in short, individuals, so such as us three ourselves, we have this right. It's a right of access um, and to receive a copy of personal data and other supplementary information. So typically the long name of it is data subject access request, but we typically hear people call them d or SARS. Um, and it helps individuals basically understand how and why a data controller is using their data and check that um, basically the data controller is doing it lawfully. Um, so I suppose there's different ways maybe someone could make it. DSAR. I don't know, Navi, if you want to kind of take us through that.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, So, DSARs can be made both verbally or in writing and can also often be made on social media platforms. There's no specific wording or template format which really needs to be used. Ultimately, when a data subject makes a request, especially in an employment context, their employer, or normally known as their controller, will be under a duty to comply with that request, typically within a month, Um, but this can be extended to three months if necessary. So within an employment context, as you've said, we're starting to see employees raise DSARS um, often more as a tactic to apply pressure on their employer where issues around their employment relationships start to arise. Often they're raised prior to formal tribunal proceedings being lodged um, with a view of trying to gain access to particular documents for the purpose of litigation. Employees raise DSARS often as an attempt to try and find further evidence, or I guess that golden piece of evidence which they hope will support their claims. It is worth, I guess, mentioning at this stage that the disclosure obligations under ADESA, um are different to that as what they would be under tribunal proceedings. Um, and given there's an increasing overlap between the two, it's helpful, I guess, to understand what those obligations are in the tribunal context. Gwyneth, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, in employment tribunal proceedings, we've got to remember that any documents which are relevant to the actual issues raised in the claim that are in a party's possession, custody or control, they must be disclosed to the other party. So this will basically include all documents relevant to the issues, whether or not they support a party's case. So a party can't just pick and choose what they want to include or what they want to exclude. And also the duty to disclose is an ongoing duty on each party. And there is a duty to disclose any further documents which come to light after the main disclosure exercise.
0: So it's a good point you make, Gwyneth, I say what if you've got a party that doesn't want to disclose, say, unhelpful documents to their case?
2: Yeah, and it's an important question which does often arise, but I think the key thing is ultimately parties cannot destroy any documents that they uncover in either process. So to do so would breach either relevant legal obligations in both DSARS and tribunal proceedings.
1: It is also worth highlighting that whilst parties can't destroy documents that they uncover, there are a few exemptions which they can rely on. And probably the most common in an employment situation would be where you have legally privileged documents which you can choose not, in fact, you do not then disclose copies of that to the other side. And then on top of that, if a request is manifestly unfounded or excessive, for example, a subject um, access request, under that, the individual has actually no intention to exercise their right of access. For example, because they're making an offer to withdraw their data subject access request in return for settlement payment, then there's no, again, there's no obligation for the data subject access request to be complied with. Or if the request is malicious, for example, again, there's no requirement to comply.
0: Thanks, Gwyneth. That's really useful. Um, And I think it would actually be quite useful now to look at how the courts have interpreted a DSAR um, against, and I suppose, how a DSAR basically interplays with litigation. So um, I'm going to look at a case where basically the Court of Appeal confirmed that a data subject access request will be valid, even if one of the purposes of the request is to obtain information for the purposes of litigation. Um, I know that we might come on to a little bit later Um, data subjects need to be careful that obtaining information is not the sole reason of the request. And as you just mentioned, Gwyneth, there is guidance on the ICO website, which says that actually if a data subject is basically making a request, um, I suppose, to try and leverage a benefit or a payment from the employer um, or the data controller, actually that could potentially be manifestly unfounded and therefore um, the data controller may be able to refuse to comply. Um, I don't know if you want to tell us about another case, Gwyneth, in which the ICO considered where a DSAR overlapped with litigation proceedings.
1: A good case would be, I think, um, the first choice selection services case when this one was where the ICO issued an enforcement notice to the company because it failed to comply with a data subject access request, which was made during the employment tribunal proceedings itself. And when the individual who brought the proceedings made the subject access request, the company informed that individual that it would only release information when it was instructed to do so by the tribunal. So the individual then complained to the ICO and after failing to respond to the ICO on a number of occasions, First Choice then said to the ICO that it had been instructed by the tribunal not to release any information at that stage, but actually didn't actually provide any evidence of this. Um, and also, the tribunal confirmed to the individual that it had no jurisdiction to deal with matters relating to data protection requests. So, that's that's one good example. And the ICO found that First Choice had willfully sought to mislead the ICO, as well as having failed to comply with the request for the DSAR. And it breached accountability principles under the UK GDPR. Um, that's a good case. But Navi, do you, can you think of another example? I think the case which you've just discussed is a reminder to employers that disclosure
2: as part of an employment tribunal claim is different to the disclosure of personal data under a And employers should ensure that they have imp- appropriate processes in place to recognize and respond to such DSARs. They are there in place to protect data subjects, but the courts will still take a strong approach where it suspects an individual is using a DSAR tactically or is abusing the DSAR regime. A recent example is in a case which involved a lender, and in that case, the claimant submitted a number of DSARs to the lender between 2017 and 19, alongside claims in the county court and high court. These concerned alleged securitisation of relevant mortgages in an attempt to prevent possession proceedings by the lender. The claimant raised around 70 DSARs in total to various parties and six directed to the lender, who responded to all DSARs it received from the claimant. The claimant subsequently issued a claim alleging, amongst other things, that the lender had failed to provide data contrary to the Data Protection Act and GDPR. In this case, the High Court dismissed these claims and held that the lender had provided adequate responses to the claimant's DSARS and they were not in breach of its obligations to provide data. The court commented that even if the claimant could show that there was a failure by the lender to provide a proper response to one or more of the DSARS, the court had a discretion as to whether or not to make an order. In this case, the court went on to comment that even if the responses had not been adequate, there would still be good reasons to decline to exercise its discretion to grant an order in favour of the claimant because the issuing of numerous and repetitive dSAs were abusive by the claimant. Whilst the court can order parties to answer de where there is a collateral purpose, namely ancillary litigation, the court will not exercise its discretion discretion in the furtherance of a claim which has no evidential basis, which is what they found in this case. And the court finally found that the real purpose of the DSARs which were submitted by the claimants was simply just to obtain documents and not any personal data. So this case is a useful example of how the court can provide relief where a claimant attempts to
1: misuse the DSAR regime. So what is the overlap in summary? Um, I think that we can say that DSARS we see can often be used as a tactic by individuals before starting litigation proceedings or even during litigation proceedings. They can be used to try and encourage a settlement with the employer. Um, Employees now really know very well that DSARS are onerous tasks and both in terms of management time and costs.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think we've seen that probably quite a lot sort of in action almost when we're working on cases and, and dealing with DSARs and helping our clients with DSARs too. So I suppose to kind of sum up today, kind of key takeaway probably. Um, is and sort of as we've seen in the court's approaches to the overlap between DSARs and litigation is that employers should respect and comply with their legal obligations in both processes, um, DSAR and tribunal litigation whilst they're dealt with under separate regimes. I think it's just important that employers remember that they are actually separate processes, have separate obligations and they shouldn't just simply ignore one for the other because it could actually land them in hot water potentially um but no it's been great thank you both for joining me today on this episode hopefully we'll have you back soon for some more uh very exciting data protection um episodes and yeah if you've got any comments as normal to our listeners please email shespeakhr at shesmith.co.uk um, and we'll see you next time thanks both
1: thanks thank you. Amy take care